Watergate 50 contains language at times which may not be suitable for everyone, and just be aware, this is episode 8 of the series. If you have missed any of it so far, please go check out thecopelandroad.org or heartandhand.co.uk. Look for Watergate 50 and get all caught up. After a brief hearing inside, Mr. Jaworski re-emerged to loud cheers this time since the word had spread quickly. But the justices had reached a unanimous decision, an 8-0 to zero decision, against Mr. Nixon, written by the Chief Justice himself. The decision was full of legal argument, but it came down to this. Yes, the President does have some rights to executive privilege, that is to keep some secrets in the White House. But he must lose that right if the evidence is indeed needed in a trial, as the 64 tapes are. But the way to handle this now is for us to have Walter do you remember your president Nixon? We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Welcome back to Watergate at 50, the Crow Pod Heart and Hand crossover now, episode 8. And David, we are into the death spiral of the Nixon White House here. Hmm. Well into it. Well into it. Yes, we are. And it's amazing how simultaneously long it took and how quickly it went. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we, we've even taken breaks, and it still feels like it's yeah. uh, it's flown uh, by. Um, I mean, it, it's really this very slow burn for two years. But like, you know, they, mean, they should make a podcast called that. They should make it's a great name for the podcast. <laughs> um, but once they, it's not as good as this one. But once the, um, you know, once the pieces began to to fall. Um, one's uh, kind of like a roof collapsing isn't it it's, at yeah. first there's a couple of drips and then maybe a bit of tile drops and then all of a sudden um yeah well, well that like an engineering a... cascading failure yeah. Or whatever the, yeah and and that's exactly what what we have here with us um with this particular thing and and it is amazing in a way that he survived from october and the saturday night massacre through till what you know june um these days Shane maybe not so much in a 24 hour news cycle but even so I think then as well the burden of proof was higher to to, you know to to actually think bad of or or to certainly think the worst of a president people didn't like him that was fair enough but to think that a president could do something illegal I think we're much more prepared to believe that people in any high office in any country are capable of misdeeds now 
Yeah, well, and I think, you know, something that we've talked about repeatedly and something we're going to talk about with one of the people that we're going to go back and look at a little bit today is, is well, I, I mean, just the commitment, the, the commitment that people threw out and all the different uh, investigatory, uh, <laughs> investigatory bodies and, um, oh, I, you know, from the media through, through, the, through the Irving Committee, through the two versions of the Special Prosecutor's Office, the House Judiciary Committee, everybody else, it was never a rush to get to the conclusion. It was, you know, what is the right conclusion? Um, Obviously, you know, like last week, how much we had to talk about this. I mean, they didn't even know how to do an impeachment, you know, and instead of rewriting the rules or what they thought the rules should be on the fly, they went, well, let's kind of go back and, you know, maybe take a look at how they they tried to do this back in 1868. And, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, let's let's see if we can find some legal text or something to to kind of steer us in the correct direction. So, you know, it, it could have become. I mean, what, one of the key things, one of the reasons that this could play out was that the Democrats had control of both houses of Congress. You know, and without that, none of this ever would have taken place. I mean, yeah. you, you could talk about you know whatever kind of moral. Uh, whatever kind of morals the Republicans found during this time, but you know, starting in uh, I don't know January of seventy three, had they had control of either the Senate or the House, this wouldn't have ever happened. Um, I mean, you but, look at the, the Wright Patman investigation that was exactly a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and yep. it's exactly the same thing. That even though, as you say, that the houses were ideally set. Um, there was still this this wild reluctance, but evidence began to to mount up and mount up. Um, and of course, you know, we're going to talk about, we've already mentioned guys like Wiggins, Charles Wiggins, who defended them to the last. I mean, he defended them until it became impossible. That's maybe a difference now that we, we know, we see people defending what we know they believe is indefensible. Oh yeah, um, because they, it's a tactical thing, and they understand that um, they'll get a reward for it down the line, be it from a party, be it from an electorate. I don't think that's the case here. I think when people were faced, because it goes back to something we said right at the start, that there were enough people who kept open minds, who kept saying, "I, I think this." However, if the evidence points me in a different direction, I'm willing to go there, um, and that that's of course the the real positive thing that. That comes out of this well i mean one of those guys again somebody that we kind of glossed over but somebody that we need to go back and spend a little bit of time on here is uh leon jaworski the second second special prosecutor and i think yeah you know david i mean it was one of the hard things with the show even even as we tried to construct them or you know i guess even as i tried to, to keep the timeline put together but it it's so hard to keep like a linear timeline um because of all the different bodies investigating this stuff of all the different people who come in and go. I mean, look, right now we're, we're up, we're, we're getting into the last couple of weeks in Nixon's presidency here. You know, that that's where we left you on episode seven there about the judiciary committee. And there is still the Sam Irvin committee working, right? They're not done. They're done with the investigations and the TV shit and all that kind of stuff, the, the stuff that, that looked good, but they're still working. And obviously again, the special prosecutor's office, has been working this entire time. And the guy, well, the, the guy who's doing that, again, you know, we, we gave a whole episode to, to Archibald Cox, deservedly so. <laughs> I mean, just Absolutely. what a damn character. <laughs> uh, 
But instead, we get well, you know, his his replacement. I, I think Bork with Nixon's, you know, approval and and whatnot kind of went down this road. Um, Leon Jaworski is he's not a Republican; he's a Democrat. But he's again a theme that we've talked about repeatedly on the show: a Southern Democrat, and he voted for Nixon twice. He was the treasurer of the uh, the Reagan uh, Democrats for Reagan part of his campaign in 1980. Um, so I mean, he, he he was not he was not Cox by any measure, no. but he was I mean, he was a man of, of great principle, a guy. Um, you know, well, I mean, he's appointed there ten days after after the massacre, which, like David said, I mean, un, under any normal circumstances, should have seen the end. Uh, of Nixon's presidency, but I think people, I, well, I think they're still part of the shell shock of everything that's going on. And again, the fact that you don't know how to reach the outcome of this, you, I, I think at that point, everybody knew what it should be, but it, you still have to do it the right way. Yeah. And that's very much Jaworski's, I mean, his, his background in all this and how he comes into this spot in the first place. Yeah, he was a constitutional law expert, very successful lawyer. In fact, had been considered for the Nixon defence team. Uh, Unlike a lot of really senior lawyers who had no personal relationship to Nixon, didn't want that job because they understood, as we know happened, as we've heard from uh, Garment, that Nixon basically wouldn't let them do their job properly. He he wouldn't allow them. Sounds sounds like somebody we know today. Yeah, I mean, so, that, that, that's the problem with incredibly <laughs> powerful people. It's 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 the problem with, with all successful people is that they think they're successful and they think it's because they've got special skills, which they do, clearly. But they, they think it makes them an expert on a lot of things. And, yes. you know, Nixon wouldn't allow his law, wouldn't take his lawyer's advice, wouldn't allow them to do things, set constraints upon them and, and really hindered them going into battle. And I think that, you know, uh, if you didn't need it, you didn't need the hassle. And, and also Jaworski was at a stage in his life. He was successful, as you mentioned, Shane. He yeah. didn't he didn't need the hassle. But like Cox, in a certain way, um, he took the job not because he thought great loads of attention. He took the job because he figured it needed doing. Somebody had to do it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this thing, look, he, he was a defense attorney. When he, I mean, coming out of school, Jaworski's first gig was like defending bootleggers during Prohibition, <laughs> which again, he took as, well, one, it made him a lot of money, but two, he took it on the, on the principled stance of, look, these people shouldn't be losing their damn lives over running, but the, the, everybody's buying, the politicians are buying it. Yeah. You know, why, why should these people be going to jail? Um, and of course, you know, he goes to work there, at what ends up becoming Fulbright and Jaworski. Uh, one one of the largest law firms in the country by the time he dies. Um, it, it, again, like so many people throughout the story, serves during World War II. He's actually in the judge advocate's office. Turns down um, the Nuremberg trials after, after prosecuting successfully a number of war crimes cases. Turns down the Nuremberg trials. Again, here comes the principles. Because the laws that they were trying to prosecute these men for didn't exist when they committed the crimes. Mm. And on his basis, on his principles, you couldn't do that. Um, of course, a, a big character and somebody, again, like I said, it's hard to keep these timelines linear. But uh, Bud Crow, who, um, well, he was he was, well, he, he was in charge of the plumbers, right? I mean, that, I, I don't think there's any other way to put it there. David. No, he, he was. He was given the, ta- he was given the task yeah. by Haldeman and Ehrlichman uh, to, to be in charge of the plumbers. Now, 
did Gordon Liddy run wild? Yes. But <laughs> did he know, taking that job, that they were going to be engaged in illegal activities? Yes, he did. What I will say for Bud Crow is he's one of the very few who, even at the time, said, no, I did this and I deserve to be punished for oh, doing yeah. this. You know, and yeah. he's he's been very upfront. He's not Dean. He's never tried to to retell the story to to suit him. No. Well, and, and Crow, you know, Jaworski. Um, well, he's the first guilty verdict that that Jaworski gets. It's the first one the special prosecutor's office gets in general because Crow does just he, he turns up. You know, I mean, look, Bud Crow again. He was in charge of the plumbers. If you remember back to episode two, we talked at great length about these. He, he was the one who approved breaking into to Daniel Ellsberg's uh, psychiatrist's office. Um, he, he ends up getting fired, ironically, again, principals here at some point. <laughs> he gets fired out of the Nixon White House for refusing to wiretap. I forget who it was that they wanted him to wiretap. But he said, no, I'm not doing that. That's, no, you're crazy. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I shouldn't have done this thing where I broke into that guy's office, but I'm definitely not doing that shit. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, he, turn, he, he, he hands himself in, right? Once Jaworski comes in, uh, hands himself in, takes his guilty plea, but um, he's trying to get readmitted to the bar, right? He goes to jail, he serves his time, right? Like like, like a few of these guys, he just said, you know what, fuck it, I did it. Send me to jail, because I'm going there no matter what, you yes. know? Let's get and that. he tries to come back afterwards. Uh, in 1980, he, he, he resubmits an application, because, I mean, he, he gets disbarred. He was a lawyer. Of course. Of course. So they punt him. You know, and he tries to get readmitted to the bar in Washington, and it's Leon Jaworski who comes in to support his application, saying that you know he he'd shown actual integrity, well, well remorse first of all, which was mm. severely lacking in, in many of these people, uh, chief among them Liddy. <laughs> but, yes. um, uh, but you know that he'd actually shown some integrity in, in turning himself in and and giving himself up again. I mean, Jaworski was not. He rabid. was not. He was no. not rabid. No, he not was not. He not was not foaming at the mouth. And when he went in uh, to the team, because it was the same team, it was the Cox team. Very loyal to Cox, and understandably so, and and deservedly so. And you know what you need. But um, they felt that they were kind of different politically, different age, you know, different part of the country. And you know, Shane, you'll know that better than us. America is a country that is very much divided by geography. It is very much um, a place that, you know, you, it's so big, you know, it's, yeah. it's got time zones for Christ's sake. So, <laughs> um, you know, you, you do have these enormous uh, differences, but he, he, he slowly won them over when they realised, hey, hang on, he's, he's not a plant. He's not here to, to finish us and to tidy us up. But what he did do, as Shane says, is ruminate a lot on the how. Right, he listened to some of the tapes when he arrived, and he's well, he's guilty, right? And he knew that it only ended one way. But how do you do it? This yeah. is the thing. Well, there is no process for this. No, and and I think you know, I mean, he he kind of well, he, here's here's part of his his very first press conference. This is on again going back. This is November 9th of uh seventy three here. So we're we're ten days out from the massacre, and this is Jaworski's first press conference here. In this regard, I wish to emphasize that the acting attorney general has issued regulations defining my authority and jurisdiction in precisely the same terms as were used in defining those of Professor Cox with what I think is a notable and, and significant addition of a firm and formal assurance that the president has agreed not to exercise his constitutional power to affect my discharge 
except in accordance with the consensus of the bipartisan leadership of the House and the Senate and of the Judiciary Committees of both houses. In particular, prior to acceptance, I was given unqualified assurance that there would be absolutely no constraints on my freedom to seek any and all evidence, wherever it may be, including the presidential files, and to invoke the judicial process should I consider it necessary. You know, I mean, right there, obviously this is, well, this is what killed Cox. And despite the fact Cox having assurances from Elliot Richardson that this would not happen, which of course this is how we get to the massacre because Richardson said, no, 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 no. You made me go in front of the Senate and tell these people I would let this guy do this job when we appointed him. And now, well, not now you're saying they can't. Uh, Nixon, you know, it's, it's one of these, why didn't he destroy the tapes, right? Why, why did he commit so hard to letting Jaworski do what he wouldn't let Cox do? And, you, you know, it's, again, without his closest advisors around him, um, even back in the fall of 73, as he's starting to come apart, uh, starting to drink more, starting to, you know, just he's he's not he's not the same Dick Nixon he was in 1972. And he concedes this point to Bork, who not an ideologue by any means uh, in terms of justice for the law. I mean, Bork has always been a far right wing zealot. And proved it, you know, even in his time in the Nixon White House. But he knew if he wanted any furtherance of a career, he would have to to toe this line that that Richardson tried to. And uh, you know, this again, this is how you end up with Jaworski. I mean, a Southern Democrat, but he's a very conservative guy, very conservative ideals, ex-military man, somebody that Nixon maybe thought somewhere in there might not lay on him as hard as Archibald Cox had. Absolutely, that's not no the doubt. case. Not Absolutely <laughs> no doubt that Nixon thought that he was getting somebody who was more simpatico to him. However, I do wonder if it had to be someone like this, because there would always have been the taint around Cox of he was JFK Solicitor General and an admitted and long-term Nixon hater. And that, that does colour it. It gives you room for manoeuvre if you're the other side, um, where you can say, ah, witch hunt. You couldn't say witch hunt with Jaworski. It just wasn't It wasn't credible. And on the, the change in circumstances, that's why the massacre is so important, because it changes everything. Afterwards, things that Nixon thought he could do, he, know, he now knows he can't. And it really is a... Uh, it moves on now from being a fight about the tapes into uh, an obfuscation of the tapes. It moves into, can we cloud this? Can we, there's a great line in Blackadder where he says, fighting a duel, he says, right, when when he says, choose your choose your sword, you kick him in the nuts, I'll set fire to the building and in the confusion we claim a draw. And that's exactly <laughs> what, what Nixon moves to. He realises now I cannot win this. But he moves to, because there's a time on it, Shane, isn't there? He's got two years, you know, at 74. Yeah. He is going to leave the White House anyway. He's a second termer. He doesn't need to worry. Can I keep this going long enough? Can I do things? Can I dial it down? Can I get the temperature down? Oh, so, I what, mean, he's parking the bus. I yes. Mean, <laughs> but, but what he doesn't ever realise is you can't get the temperature down now. You know, the, the pot has boiled uh, and it's yeah. now just a case of getting to a certain level. But you're right. Uh, I still tend to agree with Len Garment here that destroying the tape, one, it would have finished them, you know, 
it would have finished him publicly. The, the, yeah. Because nobody believes you're doing it for principle, right? He's not. No. I mean, they're accurate in that belief. Well, well, well I th- he very easily could have just pulled the, the, you can't hear anything on these. You know, and honestly, they could have just dug out one tape. Because, again, we've said it repeatedly. You, you can't hear anything on a lot of these tapes. And they could have produced one and been like, yeah, you know, this is what they all sound like. Sorry, the the system didn't work. And people probably would have believed it. Yeah, I mean, he could have done that. But by this stage, you can't. You know, no, the, no, no, this, this stage, stage no. Game. People have heard some of them. He's, People have yeah. heard some of them, yeah. So by this stage of the game, he, he really can't. And I do tend to think that destroying them right about now would be... Uh, even the ones that weren't subpoenaed yet, I think you're getting into to very dangerous ground. But it would have finished the public because people would have yeah. quite under. People were beginning now, even you know, unless they were absolutely staunch defenders of them. People were now saying, "Look, he could make. It, he, he says he wants this to go away. If those tapes clear him, why don't he just release the tapes that clear him?" Yeah. And we get done with us because it would have. And you know, people aren't stupid if it walks like a duck, etc. Um, <laughs> and people are beginning to fit. But he's determined to assert his constitutional right, which he has the same as everyone else, um, to go to court and to take this battle to court and argue in front of the highest court in the land, if need be. He's quite prepared to do that. And again, he believes, Shane, that it'll take so long to get through the, the the Supreme Court. You know, it's, it's not quite... Because it, it's not easy to get into the Supreme Court quickly, right? Even, no. You know, even no. something of this important. They take, a, they take their while. This is almost unprecedented, the speed at which the the Supreme Court move on this. Well, well, I mean, this this is Jaworski's... Um, you know, we go back to, to the Stennis, the Stennis Compromise, which which preceded the the massacre, right? That That was the first Nixon Compromise. And when Jaworski comes in, again, the the White House hands over what was it eight eight tapes I think eight. But but one of them is one where he's talking to Dean about you know it, when Dean asks him or I, I think we need a million dollars over the next two years and Nixon goes well that could be found right and Jaworski hears this and immediately knows okay well that's a crime from the president so let's start working with it you know and this is where him and the team you know Cox's team really start gelling. He goes back, uh, and he, he wants – there's 64 more of these conversations that he wants uh, – well, he subpoenas the White House for. And this is this is what sets off this this court battle. Now, again, there's another court battle going on. We're going to get back to it here in a little bit with John J. Sirica, that, that, that old chestnut, because he's the one handling the case for the, for the House Judiciary Committee. But Jaworski, as David said, you know, to, to, get, it, to get a case directly to the Supreme Court, well, it doesn't happen. I mean, there's a system by which court cases flow in this country and they flow upward toward it. And getting something to the court that quick, uh, well, you, you kind of have to be in, um, well, a, a special position. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the Jaworski asked for the, for these 64 tapes. And, and this is where Nixon comes out with his, um, well, the, the, the big the big binders full of information. Right? Yeah. Uh, thinking again that, that this would settle it. But as we find out, even even after Nixon releases these and even after everybody starts looking at them and laughing at them and expletive deleted and everything else, and even though at this point the Judiciary Committee has parts of those tapes and tells the special prosecutor's office, look, this is not what they say, um, setting all that aside, 
they only covered 28 of the 64 tapes that Jaworski wanted, mm. which was never going to be enough. Yep. And just like Cox, he also thought, rightfully so, a defendant doesn't get to choose what evidence they provide. <laughs> you know, that's not, it would be really that's not how our system works. No. Um, it, it, and look, it's a shame. I, for one, certainly would be committing more crimes if the... Oh, absolutely. If, you know, <laughs> I, I, and I'll be quite upfront with you all there, folks. I would be Your committing... Honor, I would like the, the video showing me murdering the man, removed from evidence, also <laughs> yes. weapon. Yes. Uh, also, uh, all the eyewitness statements, and actually, the eyewitnesses. Can we just yeah. kill the eyewitnesses? Also, these, these are these are um, prejudicial to to my case. <laughs> my case. Um, you're, you're, as, as Shane said, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending your point of view on how how the justice system works, you aren't allowed to select what uh, you know what you're going to 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 have to defend. And look uh, at this stage now. Jaworski has heard the tapes and has made up his mind. He knows now. He knows yeah. that 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 it's now not a matter of is this man guilty? Um, and and again, I think something to remember about Jaworski. Jaworski wasn't of the opinion I need to ruin Richard Nixon. I need to have his head on a pike. That wasn't no. the motivation. But it, it well, was. In fact, he was quite the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 but it was. We need to get this man out of the White House. Yeah. Well, well, and this is what, you know, so in the crux of this is where you get the Watergate 7, the, the, the seven close Nixon A's who end up going, well, going up, going up river. Nixon, Nixon though, is still fighting this. And, and, and this is the, the grand jury where, um, well, you know, J- Jaworski decides he's not going to indict the president no matter what, which is how the Judiciary Committee ends up with this pile of evidence. Nixon still has to fight all these tapes to keep them well out of Jaworski's hands and also out of the House's hands, right? Because uh, amongst these are the smoking gun tape, right? Yes. And that's it. <laughs> I mean that 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 one had that one tape right there come out, you know, in January 1973, we could have avoided all this because it would have just been done. Yes. Yep, that's it. So of course Nixon again in the common thread, he appeals he appeals this thing and. and Two, uh, two fronts, right? It's a special prosecutor does not have the right to sue the office of the president, which Jaworski disagreed with. Again, he didn't think he could indict Nixon as a sitting president on crimes, but that's different than suing the office of the president. And again, this is Nixon's trick, and we're going to come to Alexander Haig here in a little bit, of parsing the difference between Richard Nixon himself and the office of the presidency, right? Mm. But second, that all these materials... Were, were privileged conversation that this is the old executive privilege one. Jaworski sees this, right, and knows knows what tack the Nixon White House is going to take. And this is why he says, you know, fuck this. I'm, we're, we're in district court already. I'm skipping the Court of Appeals. We're going straight to the Supreme Court. And SCOTUS takes it up because they, I mean, they recognize as well as anybody. Look, even if this goes through the Court of Appeals, as David said, all he's trying to do is draw this thing out as long as he can. Yeah. And they go, you know what? Ron, sorry, Leon, Leon, bring it, bring it right on in the front door here. Bring it on. We'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and take a look at that. It's a huge blow for Nixon because, as yeah. Shane mentioned, there he is trying to to draw it out. He wants it to last as long as possible. And the Supreme Court do recognise it's coming here because no decision is going to be acceptable to one side. They're going to keep going until they get the final ruling on it, and. They decide, I think correctly, let's not draw this out. Let's bring this 
straight in here. This is where it's coming anyway. Let's save the yeah. time and resource um, and bring it here. And they agree to take it. And Nixon had been, they, the, their, their annual shutdown had been coming. And Nixon thought, well, that buys me a few months. Yeah. And then they say, no, we'll hear it before, before yeah. that. And that, of course, then speeds everything up dramatically. Yeah, and so, again, you know, this goes this goes before SCOTUS, and you got James St. Clair, uh, they're representing the president amongst the, well, a pile of lawyers at this time. I can't even keep up with all of Nixon's attorneys because, uh, well, uh, much like Trump, they keep coming and going, although for different reasons. Trump doesn't pay his people. Nixon just thought he was right. <laughs> Which, he, he wouldn't let them do the yeah. No, this is why, no. it, in the end, up it, it becomes, you know, there's Len Garment, who is... Uh, an old friend who worked in the White House was a Democrat actually, but was a yeah. was a liberal, but had worked with uh, Nixon, uh, and I think was more capable because of his prior relationship to Richard Nixon, not President Nixon, was more capable of telling him things he didn't want to hear. And yeah. I think Nixon would have been better suited from what one day one had he brought in Garment and listened to him, because Garment would have told him, you know, face up on it deal with the guys who have done wrong and, and he would have come through it. You know, that's the thing. So yeah. Gar- Garment is staying at a sense of loyalty, but knows he's guilty uh, and knows he is um, doomed and is trying to to kind of give him the, the, the way out. And in fact, um, Garment and St. Clair go to see Nixon at San Clemente, where he's spending a lot more time these days. Um, <laughs> and they... They speak to Alexander Haig, who's now the chief of staff, said, can we see the president? He's like, yeah, sure. What, what do you need to see him about? Well, I would have thought that was obvious. Um, you know, they're not there to, to discuss his tennis game, I would have thought. But um, they say, we need to advise him it's time to resign. And he said, well, OK, I'll tell him. And the message comes back. No, you can't see him. And he has instructed me to tell you to never, ever ever bring that up again as a point now this is his lawyers are telling him this case is hopeless there is no way out you will not survive um and he says no it's blind defiance and it's the hope really something might turn up you never know if i can keep this going because that's all he's down to now shane is time if i can just keep this going maybe who knows something could come along he doesn't know what it is but no. you never know. And and when you're down to just hope, then that's a pretty barren place to be. Well, and I mean, his lawyers did this and the, you know, we discussed some prior on the, on the back. Well, even Barry Goldwater, right, who is the Republican machine. OK, Nixon never operated within that framework until he had to. Hmm. Goldwater is the GOP. And even when he, that, you know, when he turned, because he had so many core, you know, the the modern much bigger part of the party, but the evangelical contingent of the party that, that were just so, I mean, the, just the, the foul language and, you know, just how coarse the president, like, this is not how a president's supposed to act. My God, think, think of the children, you know? Um, and that's, that's when they try to get him to go down. Jaworski though, like I said, he, he takes this thing straight to the Supreme court and on the same day, so we're right back to where we were last week, folks. I told I told you it wouldn't take us long, but we had to go back in time a little bit. On the same day that the House Judiciary Committee comes back in to begin voting, well, the, the open debate and then the vote on the articles of impeachment, 
The Supreme Court comes back with a ruling very conveniently timed for any <laughs> any wavering uh, Southern Democrats or, or even Republicans on the Judiciary Committee. And, uh, well, they, they find immediately uh, in the 8 0 ruling, um, William Rehnquist recused himself. Uh, he, he'd been, um, well, he'd just been appointed to the court by Nixon. Ne- by Nixon, yeah. And he'd served as, a, well, he, he was in the, the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the <laughs> part of the part of the DOJ that advises the president on the laws as they relate to the White House. So you can see how he might have had a little bit of concern here. You, you might remember, too, William Rehnquist comes back in 2000 with a vengeance to give George Bush the presidency. So, uh, and he made it clear that he never would have voted in favor of Jaworski's argument here uh, throughout his entire career. But they say that the generalized assertion of privilege must yield to the demonstrated specific need for evidence in a pending criminal trial. And on an 8-0 vote, Nixon has to hand over the tapes. And they are done so privately. Some of these tapes, there were members of the Judiciary Committee that really wanted to get their hands on them. It takes about a week for Nixon to comply publicly. Uh, well, and, and I mean, J- Jaworski, you know, I mean, pe- people knew. People knew the In fact, you know, here, here's Jaworski on the steps right after. Especially pleased that it was uh, a unanimous decision, Fred, because in a sense, uh, that doesn't leave any doubt in anybody's mind as to exactly what uh, the law in this situation is. I think we've had a very, very important constitutional decision, not one that uh, surprised me exactly. I certainly hope that it would be this way, and I think it'll go down in history as perhaps as an important decision. So, I, you know, I mean, this this is this is it, right? And, I mean, the, now, now the tapes are over there. Nixon, though, still, because he's still, I, I don't, David, you know, I mean, what you were just talking about there when they go out to San Clemente, they're trying to tell him, like, don't bring this up. Don't talk about this. Let's see how long we can drag this out. And and they still they're still fighting John Sirica in district court Well, in Judge John Sirica's courtroom in uh, in district court over over tapes that the Judiciary Committee are trying to get outside of this. And, you know, so three days later, again, I mean, the, the, the first day, the, the first vote on the articles of impeachment Nixon's lawyer, James St. Clair, is down there still fighting over this shit, saying that, well, we're, we're not going to give up these tapes to the Judiciary Committee because the Supreme Court said we only have to do it in case of a, a, a legal dispute, you know, a criminal charges. Would the president have any objection of turning over copies of these tapes that he would turn over to Sirico also to the House Judiciary Committee? Is there any objection? I have not, I have not uh, reviewed the matter with him because it has not been an option that we... Uh had understood was available. <clears throat> what now would be the ground for objection after the Supreme Court ruling vis-a-vis the Jaworski? Uh, well, the Supreme Court ruling is extremely limited, uh, very specifically limited to criminal prosecutions. And as I think uh, one of the senators noted in the debates the other evening. You say it's an option that you didn't understand was available. You certainly understand that the, the House wants those tapes, don't you? Well, I understand they're proceeding now as rapidly as they can to debate and final report. And... Uh, this obviously, uh, in terms of time, is not going to admit of, uh, of production for that purpose. So that if there's de- a delay, then, uh, of course, we'll review the situation. But why Once not the make them available been... for the House, the full House, or for the full Senate? Well, in the first place, they have to be reviewed. They have to be passed on by the court. And as I say, we have not really considered this matter uh, any further at this time. The House has heard them. And this is still Nixon's lawyer out here playing this, this dog and pony show. 
for the cameras, right? It, it means nothing at this point. It means absolutely nothing. And the votes come through on the House, you know, as we talked about in episode seven, three articles of impeachment. Uh, and again, just a few days later, Nixon just complies on the last day of July. And, oh, fuck it. Just release the tapes to the public. Yeah. yeah. Basically, now he he realizes that he can keep this going, but no, no one's buying it. This is the thing, right? No, nobody is buying it. Nobody is saying, oh, I'm sure, you know, he's he's it, it, they know. You know, they know. Yeah. And eventually, uh, I think it just, he realizes that, look, we, we've we fought a good fight. You know, we've we've done our best. But uh, at the end of the day, we're going to have to release these at some point. We might as well do it now. Um, and his lawyers know. His lawyers aren't going to try and talk him out of it because they know that yeah. he's guilty. He did this. Um, so it's now... Uh, it's now an argument to see if he can uh, to to see if he can survive it, and of course, being Nixon, he still hopes people will hear yeah. it in a certain context. What I would say is the context he wants them to hear it in is I didn't do anything, and people aren't stupid, unfortunately. No, well, and you know, some of these again, you know, the House had heard some of the damning tapes, but like I said, I mean, the smoking gun tape comes out in this, which is the conversation between him and Haldeman just a couple days after the break-in. That There's the one where, where Dean says, what was it, that that's the, trouble, the, the troublesome thing because Bob is involved in that, John's involved in that, I'm involved in that, Mitchell is involved in that, and that's an obstruction of justice. Like, he fucking, all right, here's everybody who's in this, and this is the crime that we committed. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm the White House lawyer. So yeah. and 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 you know about it because I'm sitting here talking to you right now and you are and you are talking back to me about it very calmly and you've just said that we could raise a million dollars to pay off these people in hush money but uh who would handle it is your big question rather than it would be wrong and of course this tape also means that uh that Haldeman is going to jail for perjury uh, yeah, well, it's he... Ehrlichman who, well, giving himself up anyway. Yeah, but, yeah. but um, they yeah. they had uh, their defense crumbles at this point as well, yeah. and now now it's it's done, and the president yeah. uh, gets a, a visitation, as Shane mentioned, from the Senate Minority Leader Hugh Scott, uh, yeah. the, the the senior Republican in the House, uh, in the Senate, sorry, and he gets a visit from Barry Goldwater, who is the the, the party who's a huge you know uh, Nixon was always scumbag oh, scumbag but, but, um, but yes he, he yeah, is the GOP I don't know so much scumbag as nutter um you know the, the man who qualifies won- you for both sometimes uh, the, the, the man who felt he could end the <laughs> Vietnam War by dropping a nuclear weapon on yes uh, I mean uh, they, they were just sitting around well, honestly, he thought he could end any war that might be coming in the future by dropping a nuclear Well, he's right. I mean, he would have ended all future all wars. Course. Yeah, yes. The planet today wouldn't be that. But you and I would never have been born, so I suppose we wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> um, but he goes up. Now, this guy is as staunchly conservative as you get, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, and they go up and they meet the president. They say, sir, it's, it's time for you to resign. And the president says, how many votes? do I have in the Senate? Now, there's 100, remember, folks. So how many votes do I have in the Senate? Goldwater says, as of this morning, we could guarantee you 10. And, yeah. he, said, and he says, does that include you? And he says, no, sir, it does not. Yeah. So Nixon then phones, actually, we're talking scumbags. He then phones uh, George Wallace, 
the uh, <laughs> Democratic governor of Alabama, the racist. Oh, you might remember from the last one you want to see on his tour of the South. <laughs> yeah, the proudly, genuinely, and I'm not saying that uh, disingenuously, folk, the proudly racist yeah. um, governor oh, yeah. of Alabama, who had been a big factor in electoral politics in the US. He'd ran as a third party candidate um uh in, in the last two and had about i think 10 percent of the vote sheet. i mean he had yeah. you know, a big old chunk of well because well, of... again i mean he's drawn off the old southern democratic vote yeah so, I mean, it's it, it helped split the democrats vote and that until the until time. the democratic party could fully realign into the vote or the party of we're not okay with the kkk <laughs> like, yes it took um, a minute <laughs> and that that that's why that's fake so he phones george wallace and he, he says look george are you with me? And he says, no, sir, I am not. Yeah. And Nixon puts the phone down and he says to, to Al Haig, he says, well, Al, there goes the presidency. And it's finally at this point that he accepts the race is, is done. He speaks yep. to his family and his family get very upset and say, don't, don't resign. Um, but he has made his mind up and he, yeah. now, he now knows that it has to be done. Well, and I think, you know, part, part of the, well, part of the reason this got prolonged in the first place was the influence of Alexander Haig. Yes. And, um, you know, let's, quick break. Let's introduce the people of this guy real quick, because he's an important player and somebody, well, in the future of the Republican Party comes up. Uh, well, he, he's in control here, if you don't know. So we'll, we'll come back with Alexander Haig and the last couple of days of the next president. All right, welcome back into Watergate 50. As always, scroll down, hit the Buy Me a Coffee link. If you like the Crow Pod, help us out. And, of course, with everything, David's stuff over there in heart and hand, just sign up for their Patreon. Just sign up to both. We love all of you. Yeah. If you guys have liked the shows, we still got a couple left. We're not done yet. This is not the last half hour, 45 minutes of the Watergate series. We, we've still got a couple shows left. So don't worry. You can settle in. Get ready. David Alexander Haig. Alexander Haig, what a man! Uh, Alexander Haig is. We we've spoken. There are people in here out of central casting. Um, Alexander Haig is your uh, arrogant bureaucrat military guy from in the loop. He's uh, from the thick of it. He's all of these things. Uh, incredibly self-regarding uh, oh, yeah. to yeah. to uh, an almost insane point. He was Henry Kissinger's deputy um, on the NSC. He was a, a four-star general. Hadn't seen much in the way of combat action, Shane. He was what you might term a political general. Yeah, uh, well, he, he kind of came in in that uh, the lull period where we weren't... Um, well, I mean, he probably would have been involved in Cuba had we gone there. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be- between Korea and... Um, well, him... You know, I don't want to say Haig's one of these hawks that doesn't actually want to get out and fly, but he there were chances for him to spend a little bit more time engaged in Vietnam. And he chose to move in diplomacy instead of active military duty. Yeah. He's uh, you you hear general and you assume, you know, especially in this era, you know, did we think of the generals Westmoreland, et cetera, that that were out there commanding 
um, commanding troops. He was not one of those generals. He worked exclusively in the Pentagon. And he was a very skilled politician, as you have to be in the army. That's that's the thing. People um, sometimes get a little surprised that the, the, the transference. You don't get to become a general if you don't know how to handle political rivals and skillfully negotiate certain challenges. And he did. Um, and he ends up being uh, the chief of staff at a vital period because Nixon isn't functioning. Nixon no. is drinking too much. He's depressed. Yeah. He's only really working on on Watergate. He's not focused. Um, and if you're somebody like Haig, who thinks you should be running the country anyway, he describes himself to people around about this time as a sort of prime minister. Um, <laughs> now, you don't have a prime uh, minister over there, mate. Is, is uh, that far off? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, the, the public at large, uh, I mean, the, probably their first introduction to Alexander Haig is, you know, in, in the time surrounding the, the Saturday Night Massacre, um, because well, the, the Yom Kippur War is kicking off, which Nixon used as a almost a shield almost every single time he spoke. It like, God, you guys want me worried about Watergate? The Soviets could bomb Israel any second. You know, I mean, almost every single one of his press conferences were like this. Um, but on the night of was it, October twenty fourth, right, the seventy three, Kissinger almost unilaterally. Well, I mean, not almost. Kissinger unilaterally decided to uh, move our military, or the, the entire USAID's military into DEFCON 3, which is Quite tedious, the yeah. highest state. I mean, this this is the highest readiness state for the U.S. military under peacetime, mm-hmm. right? He did this, again, without Nixon. Brezhnev goes, what in the fuck? Well, well Kissinger, of course, as he often would do, acting out with his, his remit, Although, as David just said, the reason that Haig is in here, the reason that Kissinger is still in his post, is because Nixon's relatively indisposed with much of the duties of the presidency. Kissinger thought that the Russians could not find out about this move into DEFCON 3 in any kind of reasonable time. They knew within minutes. Of course they did. Because they're a huge, massive country with a huge military and intelligence operation. They were like, oh, fuck, look look at what they just did. God damn. It's a so, crazy thing. I'll say that uh, for Britain. I'll say that for Britain back then, and and even now, we understand that the Soviets see things before most of most of the British public yeah. do. Um, <laughs> back then, you know, we we were well aware of that. But Hague, uh, and you know, to be fair to Kissinger, somebody had to. Um, because well, no, Nixon, no, that's Nixon that's right. But you know, well, yeah, but you know, Kissinger just does this, and Brezhnev calls and goes, "Oh, what the fuck?" <laughs> and Kissinger goes to get Nixon at nine fifty at night. Right, nine. So it's not it's not late, especially not for a president, especially no. not for Dick Nixon. This this was a guy famously that would work till two, three in the morning and get up at six, ready to go again. But this is Dick Nixon mired in the middle of uh, well Watergate, right around the time of the massacre, with everything that's going on, and he's pissed drunk, mm-hmm. and Kissinger can't get a hold of him, so he finally gets a hold of Hague, and Hague goes, oh, I'll, I'll I'll call you, I'll call you right back. Let me go get him. And he comes back and he said, well, you know, the president's retired for the night and I can't wake him. Mm-hmm. And this is where Haig starts to exert his influence. And he gets out in front of the media the next day. And, and this is, you know, what David was saying, that the, 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 the it's preaching down onto the media. It's the, um, well, well, and again, you're going to, you're going to hear this in here, the willingness to stick to the line that what's most important is uh, the good of the country and the office of the presidency. I don't think... It requires a blueprint for this group here. 
to emphasize that the issue itself had progressively began to polarize our body politic. Lines were clearly being drawn, both within the Congress, within the media, and I think to a large extent within the American, the viewpoint of the American people themselves. There were such tales being bantied about that the recent nomination of a new vice president would be held in hostage to a Supreme Court decision on the tapes issue. And there were the president to defy the court. Then we would move with an impeachment against the president, and with no vice president, there would be a turnover of the government to a party which did not win November's election. I mean, this this guy is just checking every box that Dick Nixon could want out there. Yeah, I mean, it's just rambling bullshit. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just complete, rhetorical party fucking yeah, nonsense. Complete, but it doesn't, it doesn't it play badly. Yeah, it doesn't play badly for him in the, in the, in the media. But he's, he's very, he is effectively running the White House at this yeah. point. Well, and, well, and this, this is, you know, whereas Bob Haldeman and Ehrlichman generally had the best interests of Nixon and therefore the best interests of the country at heart. I, as they I, I perceived them. No, yes, you know, right, we would, correct. No, 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 yeah, no not, I, not like some neutral level, no, but... Yeah, as they you know, perceived them to be, yes, yes I would agree with Wait, that. Whereas, look, you know, Alexander Haig out the back of this, just to, no shock, you guys, um, by December of 1974 is the Supreme Commander of NATO. Mm-hmm. So he, he turned out okay off of off the back of the job that he does here over the last... Well, and months and weeks yeah. in Nixon's presidency. It's well, it's kind of weird, you know, when when you walk the guy out the door and leave it open for the next guy, the kind of jobs that you can get off the back of that. It's well, uh, he um, ends up being Reagan's Secretary of State. I mean, yeah. it, this is a guy who does yeah. pretty well out of the 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 whole situation. Unsuccessful run for the Republican nomination in 1988. Uh, Much to Homer Simpson's chagrin. He had the backing of one Homer Simpson who has been, (laughs) there's a file photo of Homer wearing a Hague for 88 t-shirt. But um, he, uh, then we of course get the Ford issue when Gerald Ford, uh, Alexander Haig asked for a meeting with him. Now folks, there is a lot of debate about what happened at this meeting. Both people agree that no deal was struck um at this at this meeting and i agree with them i be- i do not believe that either of them were stupid enough that Haig comes right out and says nixon says he'll resign if you give him a pardon there are a lot of ways though that you can make something <laughs> clear to someone without necessarily saying those words yeah. um and to the point where after this meeting where Haig goes through all the things that can happen, including some of the ridiculous ones, like, you know, the president can refuse um, and we'll turn the troops on, you know, the Senate and things like that. <laughs> you know, things that won't happen. But he goes through literally every possible one. Um, and Ford, who is now preparing himself to become president, and, and yeah. you can say that, you know, if you're here, you can say, um, but one thing we should have all learned throughout this period is things that you say and they can come back later and be held. So they're having to be very careful and talk. But he goes back and he speaks to uh, Robert Butterworth, who's one of his uh, advisors, 
And he says, uh, yeah, I've just had a meeting with Haig. And he said, you've done fucking what? <laughs> uh, and he said, uh, well, I just, you know, I'll ask to see me. He's like, are you fucking mad? you know how that's going to look? And he makes him call up to have on the record, he makes him call Haig and say, I want this on the record. Officially, we will release this to the press that nothing was spoken about in terms of any deal. And Haig says, no, no, you're absolutely correct. We did not <laughs> speak. And nothing says to me, Shane, uh, that they did not have a deal, that the fact that they had to get together and say immediately afterwards, as soon as somebody realised how it looked. But uh, Ford, <laughs> Ford goes home, um, says to Betty, his, his wife, um, wonderful woman, done a lot for addiction. And she says, well, and he said, yep. And they went to the local church and prayed um, because they realised yeah. the shit storm that was about to come down. Yeah, and uh, well, you know, as David said, Nixon talks to his to his wife and kids there on say, August uh, 7th. Um, the night of August 7th, there, there's a famous picture of them in the, in the White House, like in the in the well, their kitchen, you know, you know, in the residence and their little kitchen that they had there. And, um, you know, tells them, you know, it's, it's time, it's time. uh, comes out August 8th. And, uh, he, I think he really, 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 for the last time, wanted to command television. Um, I agree, but it did leak during the day, obviously, because at this point, look, you got, People in the White House know, um, and they need to set themselves up for the rest of their careers. You know, uh, so you can't you can't blame this information for getting out. But Nixon still does. I mean, he commands it well. Um, I, I, I mean, he practiced a speech five or six times before then, because what the fuck else do you have to do that day? You know, <laughs> so that's pretty much it. And so, in a evening address to well, the goddamn near. Everybody in the United States, Richard Nixon. And the rest decides. of the world. It was carried yeah. live in the UK, even yeah, though everywhere. normally British TV at that time would, would literally shut down. Um, yeah. People people my age even. Oh, I think like, this would have been 1am. 1am, but um, yeah. special special late night programming in the UK. I mean, that it, it was carried live to an audience that I, I think is almost incalculable. Yeah. So. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. For more than a quarter of a century in public life, I have shared in the turbulent history of this era. I have fought for what I believed in. I have tried to the best of my ability to discharge those duties and meet those responsibilities that were entrusted to me. Sometimes I have succeeded and sometimes I have failed. The Richard Nixon on television that night is not the Richard Nixon at the White House the next day. And 
you know, look, that, Hague... that's classic Nixonian. No, um, it's perfect. It, I need perfect. to speak. You know, I'm about yeah. to resign for this terrible thing that I have did and lied about for the last two years and put yeah. the. So I need 25 minutes on television. So right I need now. a half an hour on TV, uh, all networks. And secondly, uh, I'm not doing this, you know, for my own good. He nope. gets in. This is the good of the nation. I've got to think of the good of the nation. Uh, one thing he's totally correct on, though. As he says, you know, for 25 years, Richard Nixon is along with probably FDR um, and maybe Wilson, the most significant, and Reagan. I'll give Reagan to actually because of the, the Cold War. <laughs> uh, sorry, mate, but it's true. <laughs> but, you know, and, uh, well, no, no, even because Reagan, out with his presidency, although there's you know, a long-standing impact on domestic, in terms of the most significant American political figures, Nixon dwarfs Kennedy, for example. You know, Kennedy's... Oh, Ken- well, like I, said, I mean, we've had six Ronald Reagans for president ever since Reagan was elected yeah. president. So. Kennedy's mythology is huge, for example, right? Yeah. Eisenhower, a, a great man in any any definition of a great Didn't man. Didn't do a lot. <laughs> you know, but Nixon... He was, you know, the vice president. He yeah. was, you know, through that he was president. And there's, there's just so much of his stamp on this vital, incredible period in I mean, American I mean, this, world this history. I mean, this is a man who, who actually served in World War Two. Importantly, again, the vice president goes back, is in the house, comes back, runs for president again, comes back, runs for president again. You know, you you had thirty years of Dick Nixon being there at critical critical junctures of, of the entire American existence. Exactly. And, and, and for me, then you, you know, wake up, you know, I, August I, 9th. And <laughs> I, I honestly think the only two comparable would be FDR and Wilson. And that's, I, I mean, really certainly in the modern era. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. if you go back to pre, uh, no, yeah, but Lincoln and Grant and no, yeah. purely 20th century, I would, yeah. I would definitely, he's top five regardless of. Well, well, it actually, you know, one he mentions, so he, he comes, he comes in the next morning and he wants to talk to all of his staff and he wants to talk to his family and everybody in the white house. And again, I mean, th- this is a different Dick Nixon as you're about to hear, but he tells, you know, again, I mean, he's got notes, he's got a speech. He's not, he's not ill prepared. But he's also just rambling because he doesn't know what to do. And you can he's hear emotional. it in his voice. You know? Yeah. I mean, I he's, actually he's, think he's I cut actually, adrift here. Yeah. I know? actually think that you're going to play it and we're, we're going to discuss it afterwards. I'll, I'll let the listener see it and I'll, I'll tell you what I think afterwards. But go with the clip first. Yeah. So here is, a, well, again, another one of the most controversial, or, well, well, most important. I want to say controversial. Most important presidents is who he's talking about here, Mr. Teddy Roosevelt. You are here to uh, say goodbye to us, and uh, we don't have a good word for it in English. Uh, The best is au revoir. We'll see you again. (laughs) Had a little quote in a speech last night from T.R., as you know, I kind of like to read books. I'm not educated, but I do read books. <laughs> and uh, there's another one I found as I was reading my last night in the White House. And this quote is about a young man. It was a young lawyer in New York. He'd married a beautiful girl. 
And they had a lovely daughter. And then suddenly, she died. And this is what he wrote. This was in his diary. He said, She was beautiful in face and form, and lovelier still in spirit. As a flower she grew, and as a fair young flower she died. And when my heart's dearest died, <clears throat> died, the light went from my life forever. That was T.R. <clears throat> in his 20s. He thought the life had gone from his life forever, but he went on. And he not only became president, but as an ex-president, he served his country always in the arena, tempestuous, strong, sometimes wrong, sometimes right. But he was a man. He was a man, David. He was a man. And yeah, you, you hear, I mean, clearly emotional. Um, yeah. You hear that he's, he is, he's just rambling. And there's, it's this curious mix of, of self-pity. Oh. I mean, he's comparing the loss of a daughter to, to the loss having to leave senses. the White House. Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, but the wife and daughter, it was the same night. Yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah, yeah, lost yeah. Uh, his wife and his, his right. daughter died. Um, uh, I, and again, you know, you get in, I'm not educated, you know, you, you, yes, you are. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you, the people have, but it's that still, you've got the, the self-pity, you've got the the sense of, Everybody's out to get me. It's a sin for me. Um, but then you get that beautiful part where he speaks about, you know, hating others. And finally, finally, he gets it. Too late. And I think yeah. that there's something fittingly tragic about this is when he says that, uh, you know, give your best. Don't hate others. Uh, yeah. Others may hate you. But don't hate them back because when you do, you destroy yourself. And you go, well, finally, there you go, at last. Yeah. And it is very beautiful. And it's almost, it's always a moment that gives me goosebumps when I watch it because right then, finally, and this man is now in his 60s, and this yeah. man has had an incredible career, and he hasn't had this insight until it's too late. Yeah, he's, two, he's, he's two hours from walking out of the job. He's finally given that insight. Finally, he's he's been allowed, but it's taken him to lose. I mean, well, I mean, where he worked his whole life for. But, uh, yeah, and and something that is still unsurpassed. It's never been done. It's never had. No president has. And look, you know, Carter lost an election. Trump lost an election. People lose elections. That, that shit happens. But only one man in history has had the job and been taken and forced to leave it. 
Um, and that's him. And never mind being the first, he could still well be. We could be back here. Well, you and I are unlikely to be. You never know. Mm, technological nah, breakthroughs. Look, ten but, years, man. That, that's yeah, about <laughs> probably. Yeah. But me, me, if we get tomorrow, we're okay. Yeah, we, we, we take it as a score draw. Definitely exactly. a good solid away point. But um, no, if we're about a hundred years, or the listeners are, or anyone is listening to this, then it probably won't have happened by then either. Um, no. And this is an insight that was blindingly obvious to almost everybody, that here is this man who has exactly done what he said. He he hated others because they hated him. And, you know, we'll, we'll do a kind of roundup show and we'll talk about Nixon the person. And we spoke a bit about it in the first episode. But this is the contradictions. And, you know, here's, here's this guy, this amazing CV. And it is, you know, Matt Red, you know, it's an amazing CV. 100%. Amazing achievements, loving wife, loving family, um, by any possible definition of success in life. I mean, fr- friends willing to go to jail for him. Yes, you know, <laughs> you know, um, you know he owns you know properties the size of you know Kentucky, and <laughs> by any definition, and none of it was ever enough. And and in fact, that darkness, that internal darkness, is such that it consumes him. And only after it's consumed him does he finally, finally get that glimpse of understanding. And to, to be honest, Shane, I don't think it could have been any more fitting. That is sort of how it had to end for him. In a way that we, we've spoken about this play enough like a movie script, you know, he could have went off being dragged, kicking and screaming and and it wouldn't have been as fitting as this. His final chat with the staff, many of whom are in tears um, and breaking down. And then he goes out and he gets to give the last defiant V for victory sign. There's one more thing in in the speech I did want to play. And by all means, folks, like everything else that we've talked about in this show, go watch it. Because it's, again, it's about a half hour. I'm not going to play the whole goddamn thing. But, you know, as David said, he's coming to these realizations and he's thinking about his his life and himself as a person and the lessons that maybe he should have maybe he should have taken on board a couple of years prior. And he comes on to his his mother and it's. Nobody will ever write a book, probably about my mother. Well, I guess all of you would say this about your mother. My mother was a saint. And I think of her, two boys dying of tuberculosis, nursing four others in order that she could take care of my older brother for three years in Arizona and seeing each of them die And when they died, it was like one of her own. Yes, she will have no books written about her. But she was a saint. And like David said, you know, well, I I think right there, he's having to go through, like, you can see it in him. What would my mom think about me right now? That's you exactly know? it. 
you know, and he's having to process all this. And then as David said, he, he goes in and he signs the, signs the letter to Henry Kissinger to say, I'm, you know, I'm out. (laughs) And him and Gerald Ford walk out onto the main lawn of the white house. And he has his last moment here as, as broadcast by CBS. This is the south side of the White House, the side that faces the Washington Monument, Turning Basin, and the Lincoln Memorial. They are emerging from the so-called diplomatic entrance downstairs. There is the man who will be president in another couple of hours, Gerald Ford and his wife, Betty Ford. Vice President President Ford, this morning, uh, as he left his home to... uh, to come here for for this this occasion said it was indeed one of the saddest incidents that he's ever seen there is the president waving goodbye and you hear the applause president nixon peering out from behind the bullet resistant glass vice president mrs ford standing just to the left of mr and mrs cox and just in front of that old magnolia tree that was planted by Andrew Jackson. President Nixon's helicopter going over the fountains of the White House South Lawn, over the back black fence, high over the ellipse. toward the base of the Washington Monument. And President Dan is getting his last look now as he peers back from that seat in the helicopter what a scene of the White House as President of the United States. This will be the last look. By the time that he comes back to this point, if indeed history decrees that he does at any point, he will, of course, no longer be the president. And that was it. And that was it. And uh, America now had uh, a new president. And we'll we'll get into that more next week because the story isn't done yet. No. The story isn't done. What was going to happen to him? What was going to happen? Yes, he wasn't the president, but there was still all these criminal charges, criminal acts. Well, well, and that's, I I mean, I do love, you know, David, you were saying there right before, but that last, his last moment on the steps, you know, that last Nixonian moment in front of the cameras there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, yeah. it's perfect. You know, it's the defiance. It's the, you know, I'm on TV, which, you know, was always something that he loved. Um, and it is, it's exactly, it's all the things that, that we said. And it's, you know, a, a V sign to his critics. It's it's going out on his shield. That's, it's everything about the guy that, you know, that, that morning is everything about the guy that, that fascinates us because it's, it's got all of the things. It's got defiance. It's got self pity. It's got pride. It's got insecurity. It's got uh, rambling. You, you, you can even see it, like in his smile when he throws at the visa. He's like, oh, yeah. "Should should they be doing that? Ah, fuck it, I'm nah, doing fuck it. it." That's exactly <laughs> it. It's like, you know, fuck the law of you. Um, I'm doing it. And, yes, and took me but, out of my fucking house. God yeah, but but uh, but that's a man who half an hour before had been almost in tears and rambling about his mum being. I said, you know, there are, there's so much going on about Nixon. He is just this 
this fascinating cornucopia of just about and and they shouldn't live in the same person that's the thing about nixon that's these are things you cannot be as supremely confident and as debilitatingly lacking in self-confidence as he is at the same time and yet he is and it's this constant battle richard nixon is just a walking battle between his his inner emotions and he was that what was it what was it? He wrote, well, it came in his memoirs later, but, you know, he'd written in his journal that night as, a, as the helicopter moved on toward a, with the Andrews Air Force Base. I found myself thinking not of the past, but of the future. What could I do now? Mm-hmm. You know, and I got on the plane and then went home to San Clemente. And then, you know, as David said, look, there's still a lot to figure out here. Uh, Ford is president, but as, as Jaworski had said, despite well, apparently everybody on the grand jury, all, all 19 people on the grand jury sitting on the, the evidence against Dick Nixon that wanted, well, thought he should be indicted while he was mm-hmm. still president, uh, as we find out after Jaworski's passing in 1982. Um, he's not the sitting president anymore, and he has committed a lot of crimes. A lot. that let me, mm-hmm. So, like, just a laundry list of fucking crimes. And obviously Nixon knows. He's a lawyer. Um and he knows how bad this might be, but mm. Gerald Ford is there. And well, as David said, look, next week we get to come back, we get to wrap, but put a little bow tie on everything, I think. Not not only, you know, the the final decision around what should happen to Dick Nixon, but also I, I think, you know, we'll probably spend a little bit of time looking at um well, the the Frost interview and, and the interviews later in life and, and some of the other people, too. Like I said, I think a lot of what John Ehrlichman had to say after the fact was was pretty, pretty insightful uh, to how I, I think most of the people in that White House were, were thinking about things at the time and how they come to think of them later. Yeah, agreed. Watergate 50, that's episode eight. I said, that's, I don't know. I mean, if all you wanted to do was get to the point where Nixon's gone, I guess, you know, you're out. But, uh. Oh, no. They'll want to know what happens next. Yes. There's still plenty to come. No, there, there's, uh, well, and, and look, I said we would get to this point. We have gotten to this point. So, again, if you go down the show notes, you like everything that we're doing, hit the Buy Me a Coffee link. That helps out the Crow Pod with David. Of course, you go to their Patreon. But also in the show notes this week, there will be a link to effectively leave us a voicemail. Um, it goes through the, the, the crows, the crow pods anchor uh, website. You just click it. You can leave us a question. We're still, you know, me and David got to talk. We still might do a live show or something of that sort. But for now, all you got to do, like I said, scroll down to the show notes, wherever you're listening to this right now, there's a link there. They'll go to the, the crow pods anchor. It's, it's our hosting platform thing, whatever. You click on that, you can leave us what is effectively a voicemail. Leave, leave us your name or, or if you got a Twitter handle, whatever, so we know who you are or fuck, even your follow, follow, fucking sign up if you got that. Um, that way we can reach out to your families and tell them what a strange person you are for leaving us <laughs> messages in the middle of the night. But no, ne- next week, next week's the last one that we're going to go with just us. Um, so like I said, I mean, there, there, there's the pardon of Nixon, there is the well, you know, the final 20 years of Nixon's life. I mean, he's still, to the day he died, say he was innocent. To the day he died, he fought to keep his papers and tapes and recordings. Um, uh, these uh, this, these court cases weren't even done. They were decided after his death, mm-hmm. uh, uh, many of them. Um, I mean, he spent... 
Faino he spent, really he spent the last quarter year or the, the, the last quarter century. You know, he talks about in that farewell speech that I spent a quarter century in the middle of the most, you know, consequential decisions of this time in history. But he spends the last quarter century of his life fighting li- literally every single day to keep any of that decision making private. Um, it, it consumes him, you know, and, uh, and so, Watergate never goes away to- for him. No, final release of tapes isn't until 2011. Yeah. That's well, and again, uh, I mean, we, we talked about, look, there's, was it 2,200, 2,500 hours of tapes somewhere around there? But there's only about three or 400 of them out there. We've got we've got all the transcripts and everything, or at least what you can make out. Mm. But as far as the audio goes, again, the quality's poor. Um, and decisions have been made, you know, not because you can't make out a lot of this shit. But you know, I just, I can't. It's it's the thing. Well, David, I mean, you've said it repeatedly. It's why we find Nixon so entertaining or so engaging all this time later that he would he. Oh, God damn it! I mean, you're done. It's over. And yet he is going to spend literally every day of the rest of his life fighting Watergate He's until the day he dies. The rest of his life telling the story the way he believes it should be told. Yep. And that's that. Not telling the truth. You'll note I very expressly didn't say that. And not even his truth, because it wasn't that. He spends the rest of his life fighting to tell a story, a yeah. version of Watergate. But uh, there's some cold shit ahead next week as well for yeah. how, he, how he spoke to some of his ex-employees who'd gone to jail for him. Uh, Nick, don't miss next week. There's a lot of no. very interesting well, stuff ahead. By God, 69 former government officials end up indicted or charged throughout this and 48 being found guilty. And of course, many of them are his top, top, mm-hmm. top, 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 top. I mean, again, we're talking about Mitchell, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, LaRue, Magruder, Kleindienst, whoever. I mean, his his fucking people, right? And yes, as David says, it's not. Um, well, it's it's not done. <laughs> I mean, the, the, there's still tea being spilled uh, around around the Nixon White House. So back for that next week, episode nine. Again, like I said, scroll down in the show notes to either help us out or if you want to, if you got a question, if you think we haven't talked about something, if you think that there's something that you want to hear more on, leave us a note there. Uh, you call, you hit the little button, you leave us a voicemail, just leave your name and what your question is. And we will definitely come back and answer those in episode 10, if not do a live show as well. So that's it. David, of course you can find on Twitter for Nixon shit at David a Edgar 23. If you want to talk to him about Rangers, you know where to find him on Ibrox rocks. Thanks again, David. A pleasure as always, mate. And me, of course you can always find that avoid. We'll be back sometime here soon for episode nine the, the i don't know the day after tomorrow i guess that, but write that down that's gonna be yeah it's good to like that yeah day after tomorrow <laughs> all right guys th- thank you all we'll talk to you soon bye it is just too tricky for a chump like me to use oh you you take that stuff, you made a serious boy, and I'm serious. You just might get a seizure from the evening. Oh.